Do you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2? We started the study in Matthew last week, obviously in Matthew chapter 1. And we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. We looked at the genealogy that Matthew provided was the royal line or the legal line down through Joseph. But there was a blood curse in that through Jehoiakim who was told that none of his direct descendants would ever be on the throne of David. So therefore, if God's promises are true, Joseph could never have been the biological father of Jesus because that would have meant that Jesus could never reign on the throne of David. And, uh, and so we'll, we see in Luke's Gospel that there's a genealogy that runs down through to Mary. And that's the line through which, the blood line, as they call it, that, that Jesus was born into. If you look at the two genealogies, you'll find the separation uh, comes at David, King David. Uh, the, the legal line came down through Solomon and into Joseph. And the bloodline came down through Nathan. Uh, David's other surviving son uh, came down through the bloodline to, to, to Mary. The genealogy told us a lot about, you know, the background to Jesus. The fact that there were four women in the genealogy in Matthew was quite exceptional. I mean, it's not normal for Jews to include women in the genealogy. And I wanted to think about it from the point of view that, you know, we spoke about it last week, that there was a genealogy in every gospel except Mark. Uh, sorry, yeah, except Mark. Matthew was the, was the, blood, was the legal line. Uh, Luke was the bloodline. And John was the divine line that Jesus was the Son of God. That was the, that's the only um, genealogy there is there. And in Mark there was no genealogy because Mark showed Jesus to be the servant king and servants and slaves at that time didn't have genealogies. And I want to think about it just before we start chapter 2 here, about it f for you guys. You have a genealogy. You have a genealogy in respect of your own blood relatives, if you want to call it that, back through the ages. Many of us don't know who we are, really. I mean, they're on these television programs, who do you think you are and all the rest of it. How far back can you go in your own genealogy? I can remember, obviously, who my father and mother are. I can remember who my grand father and my grandmother were on one side but I don't know who they were on the other side and that's as far back as I can go I really don't know beyond that and yet these Jews could write this down for thousands of years and find out who they actually were So, the genealogy that you have is a, is a natural bloodline, but you also have a spiritual bloodline. You have a spiritual bloodline in that the blood of Jesus was shed for you, and that if you came under the blood, then you become a son of the living God. There are no nephews and nieces, or uncles and aunts, or grandfathers in the kingdom of God. We're all sons and daughters of the living God if we come under the blood. We come under that as being the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And I want to sort of make the point this morning that when you come under that bloodline, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. Your genealogy through your physical mothers and fathers and grandfathers doesn't really matter. 
What matters is that you're washed in the blood and you've become a son or daughter of the living God. And that all your sins are forgiven. All of them. Every one of them. Whether they're past, present or future, God is outside of time. All your sins are forgiven. And that's something that we have to rejoice in this morning. And so, when we start chapter 2 here in Matthew, we find Matthew telling us the story from Joseph's point of view, really. We've looked at this before, that it's all about Joseph's dreams and and, uh, the fact that he was directed here, there and everywhere to to accomplish God's will. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So Matthew starts here really by saying after Jesus was born. So he tells us nothing about the birth of Jesus. He tells us nothing about the preamble or the the work up to the birth. He just starts immediately by saying that after Jesus was born. We'll get nothing about the shepherds. Um, There's nothing about the, 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 the... people around them about the stable about the fact that they travelled from Nazareth to Bethlehem we find all that in the book of Luke and, uh, and so here he starts here that after Jesus was born in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi came from the east now these were not kings let's get that one out of the way for a start we talk about these three kings and there's, there's no such thing as these three kings they were Magi at that time the word meant wise man wise man and and for that point of view it really meant astronomer somebody who studied the heavens and it was not astrologer in the sense that they studied it for the point of view of of telling some sort of fortune or other they studied it for the point of view because they were fascinated by it and these people were probably arrived in some sort of great caravan there were certainly more than three of them it would have been improbable that these guys who had come, we think, we believe, from Persia, from that side of the world, modern day Iran and Iraq, all the way to Jerusalem. And remember that this journey would not really be made straight across the desert. It would have been impossible for a caravan to come across the desert. We spoke about this with Kim Ting Nebuchadnezzar's army. They would come up. They would come up the Euphrates River to the top and and then they would cross over at the top and down the Jordan River. Anywhere where there was water that would keep them and their livestock alive while they made this journey, which probably could have lasted, depending on how many there were, but could have lasted from between four and six months. So these guys were, were wise men. They brought three gifts, and that's probably where we get the confusion. You know that they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh to this king. Now, the, the, the background to these magi were probably the fact that they were they were part of the Jewish diaspora in Persia. The people who had been taken captive four or five hundred years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And then they had been taken over by the Medes and the Persians had been uh, Cyrus, etc. and Xerxes as we studied in the the book of Esther. So my belief is that these guys were set up or, or, or involved in something originally with Daniel, the prophet Daniel who was in 
Babylon from 605 BC from the point where the first exile was taken into Babylon. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, he has a tremendous prophecy in regards to the actual timing of the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah, etc. And although we're not told exactly in Daniel how it all worked out, but it would appear that somewhere along the line he was told that this king would appear and that there would be a sign in the heavens to show the people that this king was about to appear. Now, we don't know what the sign is. We call it the Star of Bethlehem. And uh, I'll probably get a film to show you near Christmas which will uh, maybe enliven you a bit or help you think a wee bit more about the, the Star of Bethlehem. But these guys were waiting. This had been passed down from Daniel's time that there would be a great king born out of the east. Indeed, you know, there was... Even the, the Roman historians have found two. They were looking for a king. Suetonius, the Roman historian, says there has spread over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time, that's the time of Jesus, for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Now that was a Roman historian. And Tacitus, the Roman historian, says also there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful. And rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. Now, that's God bringing things into men's minds that really don't know God. So God can use all people. We saw that in the book of Esther. That it doesn't really matter what men do. God can work all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So we find that this, this, this caravan, this group of camels and people there would probably be soldiers accompanying these guys as they came to Jerusalem as well it would be unlikely that they would travel with such expensive gifts as gold frankincense and myrrh without some sort of guard these guys would be highly regarded in Persia as being top notch astronomers and they've seen something in the sky which has puzzled them They've seen something in the sky which probably in some sort of writings that were brought forward from Daniel's time they've looked and they've said there's something here, this is something that has been foretold something that even Daniel way back then has managed to, to, to put a name to the coming of a king you know church tradition tells us the names of the supposed three wise men I wonder if you can remember them Anybody remember them? Melchior, Caspar. Huh? Who's the last guy? Balthazar. Balthazar. I mean, in some measure, it's a load of rubbish. I mean, it really is. And what I did find out was that these supposed three wise men. If you go to Cologne in Germany, apparently you can see the three skulls in the cathedral at Cologne in Germany. I mean. We three skulls of ancient, oh, whatever it is. But you know, we need to be careful. There's a lot of superstitious rubbish being peddled and still being peddled. You know, in the Roman Catholic tradition, you can actually pray to these skulls and somehow achieve some sort of, I don't know, blessing. Or and in many situations, from about the third century AD onwards, 
We've got places in Europe, cathedrals built around the fact that somebody's toenail is in a glass jar or somebody's little finger. And, and we laugh at this and we know that it's silly. But there are people who believe this. And it's quite sad that people have been conned into it. And there's still a great tradition, obviously, amongst people who really aren't Christians, who really are not born again, that, that these are the, the three wise men. There may have been a hundred of them, I don't know. There were certainly three gifts, but... You know, we look at the birth of Jesus here, after the birth of Jesus, round about that time, as, as Matthew talks about here. <clears throat> before Jesus ever said a word, before he ever brought forth a teaching, he was starting to influence the world. As he lay there as a child in a, in a, in a manger... He was starting to influence the world. He was starting to change the world around. Three wise men came to visit him. Shippers came to visit him. As all these people talk about. Now Herod the Great was the king at the time. And we've spoken about Herod in the past. He was wealthy. He was politically gifted. He was intensely loyal to those who were loyal to him. But he loved power and destroyed anybody that stood in his way. He was a real... Despot in some measure. He had gained his kingdom by, by becoming uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, the new Caesar, becoming his dog. He, had, he basically was, a, was very loyal to, to Mark Antony before that, but he became very loyal to Augustus or Octavius as he was before he was Augustus. But in later years, there seems to have been something, all the Roman historians try to tell us that there was something that had happened to him. He, he became extremely paranoid. Um, to the point where even Augustus, the emperor of Rome, said of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because you were in less danger if you were his pig. So anyway, this star, we talk about the star of Bethlehem, we've kind of laid to rest the, the three wise men issue. This is a, a huge caravan of people arriving at the palace in Jerusalem. So what was this star? Well, the scripture there tells us, if you read it, just read it, it says it was his star. We have followed his star. Now, it was very clear to these wise men that it was a star specific to this person who was to be born King of the Jews. And they came originally to the palace of King Herod at Jerusalem. Because where else would you go if you were looking for a king to be born? You certainly wouldn't go to a stable. Or you wouldn't go into a, a, a normal house. You would come to the palace. Where is this? Who's to be born king of the Jews? And in verse 3 in Matthew chapter 2, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Apparently when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. He was paranoid about his position. For somebody to come and say to Herod, where is this child that is born to be king of the Jews? That would set his paranoia off ten times over. I mean, he just... Herod, Herod like many of us, wanted to be accepted. Many of us live in that place where we don't think that we're acceptable. That we're inferior in some measure. We, 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 we walk around with an inferiority complex. Even although we're sons and daughters of the living God, we sometimes behave like slaves. 
We behave that there's no worth in us. And yet Christ died for us. And that's the worth that's in us. Herod wanted to be accepted because he wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite. He came, or an Edomian, if you, some translations will put it. So down around the bottom of the, 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 the Dead Sea was the land of Edom. And that was why, in some measure, Herod built Masada down that end of the world because it was nearer to his power base than it was to Jerusalem. But the Jews tolerated Herod. They had no option because he had been appointed by Augustus Caesar to be king over this region and uh, the Jews in some measure had no option but to accept him. But Herod constantly, constantly strived to be acceptable to people, to the Jews particularly. And the Jews tolerated him mainly because of the work that he had done on the, the second temple, uh, the, the, the temple that had been built um, after Solomon's temple had been destroyed. He upgraded it. He made a beautiful job of it, apparently. He was a very well-organized man, and when he put his mind to something, it really got done. And so this huge temple that you can see, you can catch online, you can see a, a picture of this temple that, that Herod upgraded. And some people actually believe that they're talking about you know, a third temple being built, but some people actually believe that this was the third temple. It was so different from the temple that he started with when he upgraded it and built it and built it to biblical standards and biblical plans that some people it's entirely up to yourself some people call the second temple the one that was built in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and this one he heard although it was an upgrade they actually think it might have been the third temple but anyway it doesn't really matter that's we're going into another story there but we come down to, you know, I always remember that old Beatles song, Money Can't Buy Me Love, and, and that's exactly where Herod was. He, he tried so hard to be acceptable to people that he became absolutely paranoid about it. When Herod came to power, this, this gives you an idea as to who he is before we go on with this story about when Herod came to power, about 37 BC or whatever it was, round about there, he murdered the whole Sanhedrin. They had them taken out and murdered. This was the ruling council of the Jews. They were just destroyed. And at some point in the, in the proceedings from 37 BC to the coming of Christ, he had another 300 public officers executed because he thought that they were ganging up on him and they wanted to, to dethrone him. He also killed his wife, Mariamne, because he thought that she was a traitor as well. And her mother... Um, I can understand him murdering his mother-in-law right now <coughs> but not his wife and, uh, and three of his sons three of his sons fell under the knife uh, by Herod as well now these it's a tremendous story it's a, you, could, you could make a great film out of it if you wanted to I mean it was just doing Herod's life would have been uh, was, was quite colourful you, you didn't want not a guy that you wanted to cross and that's the guy that these wise men came in and stirred up the paranoia in them we've come to worship the newborn king pardon what newborn king and of course Herod the paranoia would be rising in him and at verse 4 when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea they replied for this is what the prophet has written 
Verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a quotation from Micah 5, verse 2. And that's a lot of what Matthew does. He tries to bring forward the fulfillment of prophecy because, as we spoke about last week, he's speaking to the Jews. He's trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Lion of Judah. It says here Bethlehem in Judea because, believe it or not, there was another Bethlehem. There was a Bethlehem north of Jerusalem as well. So this is putting it in its proper place that this is Bethlehem in Judea. It's not Bethlehem in Ephraim. It's Bethlehem in Judea. Here we have a group of intellectuals brought together. All the Bible scholars and the chief priests. All of them. You can imagine that the, the people in front of in front of Herod, where is this baby? Is there any prophecy regarding this child that's to be born king of the Jews? And they would bring their scrolls and they would be... How many days or weeks, I don't know, it would take them to, to wade through the scrolls looking for any clue as to what was happening. But finally they come up with this prophecy in Micah that in Bethlehem in Judea, this would be the place where the king was to be born. And all of these intellectual people who were there, they saw and they read and they studied the word. They were given the opportunity here by God to do something with it. And they just totally ignored it. Their intellect got in their way. The fear of Herod got in their way. They didn't want to acknowledge that there would be a Messiah coming. And certainly not in this situation. So they gave Herod the bare facts and that would appear as to all they did with them. And many people are like that today. You give them the facts, you give them the gospel, and they just don't do anything with it. Either their intellect or their fear or, or some combination of both gets in the way. Because I, I will tell you this, there's no question or doubt that people are frightened of Jesus. I've found that many times in my own life. Not least to say the night when I, when I finally gave up drinking. And... Uh, Alcohol and I were never great friends. Well, we were, but we didn't do each other any good. And uh, when I went to this birthday party this night, as many of you know the story, I had decided that morning, or the Lord had spoken to me that morning, if you want to be rid of this, I'll, be, I'll take it from you. And I said, Lord, I, I really want to be rid of this. I don't want to. I don't want to be a slave to alcohol anymore. And so that night, that very night, God put me to the test. I went to this birthday party and it was just a case of everybody getting drunk. That was it. See who could crawl home the quickest. And uh, I turned up with a, a bottle of iron brew and a six pack of coke. And of course I went to the barbecue and people in the street knew that I'd get saved because I had been constantly telling them about it for five or six months at this point in time. And my friend across the road we, him and I were always the, the, the cooks. We were the barbecue guys. So I stepped up to the barbecue and I put my apron on as normal. Just And he pulled a can of lager and he popped the top. And he says, here you are, there's something to get you started. I says, Archie, I'm not wanting it. Okay, he says, what's happened this time? Is it Lent again? You know, the, 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 the throwaway remark. I says, no, it's no Lent again. I says, but if you really want to know, I says, Give me half an hour and I'll tell you about it. And uh, he was absolutely just backed off. 
And all that night, people, anybody that I spoke to, it was, it was as if I had leprosy. They, they just didn't want to be in my company. I mean, these were people that I knew. And they didn't want to be in my company in case I infected them with something. And that was the night I realised that people were frightened of Jesus. You know, it just, it was just, and, and I went home that night and wept. Because that was the first time, not only had I gone there and not been drunk, I'd gone there and never had a drink. And since that night I've never had a drink. And that was probably 30 years ago. And it was just, it was just amazing what God did. So instead of being like these intellectuals who decided to just ignore Christ, I, I took him on. I took him to the test and he took me to the test. And uh, I, I, that night I made a covenant with the Lord that I would never touch alcohol again if he would sustain me. And he has done. And I bless him for it. So these people here, they were, they were all intellectuals. They had all the information, but they refused to bow down and worship the Messiah. And then Herod called the Magi, verse 7, secretly, and found out for them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him with a hatchet. Oh, that's not written there, but that's what he meant. So we find here that literally no sooner had Jesus appeared in this earth, but Satan tries to destroy him. Right away. Let's get rid of this. He receives gifts from the, from the wise men. He receives homage from the shepherds. And he receives a death threat from Herod. Herod wanted to know the exact time when this star had appeared. Because it obviously wasn't something that was local or, or just in the immediate past it was something that happened a while ago maybe months before so he wanted to know the exact time it may have been we reckon it may have been a year previous that this star had started to appear and uh, we don't really know what it was we don't understand what it was it could well have been a, a, a a heavenly light. It could well have been something that God put there. I mean, we're in, we're, in, we're in a real place of miracles at this point in time, and this could well have been a miraculous uh, appearance in the sky. It obviously was in some measure. And after they had heard the king, verse 9, that's the wise men, they went in their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. <coughs> Excuse me. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod they returned to their country by another route. We find here that wise men listened to heaven and not to men. These men were listening to the Lord. These men all after they had come and presented their gifts and seen this child, they went back another way because the Lord had warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. So these guys, the wise men, and the wise men today still listen to heaven and not to men. The supernatural star appears again here. Many commentators believe it was akin to the sort of Shekinah glory that, that, that led the children of Israel. That it was something that was there, the presence of the Lord that was always there and just led these people, these wise men, 
to exactly where they want you to go because God will lead you exactly where you want to go if that's where he wants you to go. So if we're in the centre of God's will, we'll have no fear of following the Lord because he will lead us in that perfect path. You know, to paraphrase it, the Bible says that, you know, men make their plans and do their own thing, but it's the Lord that directs our steps. And if we really trust in the Lord, then that's exactly what will happen to us. So the gifts, nobody would appear before a king, especially these wise men, nobody would appear before a king without a gift. You'll find that in many parts of the scripture here, that that people, when they appear before royalty, they'll always have a gift with them. And it says here that the gifts were given to the child and not to his parents. They were expensive gifts. What would Jesus do with a gift of gold, frankincense and myrrh? Gold would indicate spiritually that, that it was royalty that was being involved here. The frankincense would indicate some sort of divinity that was involved here. And of course the myrrh, myrrh was, a, was an embalming fluid which would indicate death. It was a strange combination of gifts, or it must have appeared so to, uh, to Joseph and Mary. The more important thing is that rather than the gifts that they brought, that they worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him, and they offered him gifts. God warns again in a dream. So where was Joseph, Mary and the child at this time and and I want you to think about the way that scripture is written there it says they saw the child with his mother Mary now that's a very unusual way to put things the father would usually be put first the mother second and, and the child would be mentioned last if indeed it was mentioned at all but here we have Matthew placing it they came and they found the child with his mother Mary and Joseph's no mentioned And it would appear when we look at this that when Matthew was taking his notes, if you want to call it that, these were notes that would be supplied to him or or, or first-hand accounts supplied by probably Joseph because the whole of the first few chapters of Matthew seems to be written from the point of view of Joseph. He talks about the dreams that he had. He talks about the way the Lord had directed him in the dreams. Nobody would know these things except Joseph. So we find here that although Matthew didn't write this book till some many years later, we looked at this first chapter, he was the note taker. He was the, the minute secretary. He was the guy that went around and talked to people and said, what exactly happened here? Joseph, we know that you're no the biological father, but how did you get to this place? How did you know to take Mary as your wife? And of course, Joseph would explain to Matthew, the dreams that he had and the way that the Lord had spoken to him in those dreams. So they worshipped him. But we're still in Bethlehem. It's unlikely we're still in the stable here. Jesus, at this point, because of the the coming of the Magi, because of the way Herod had reacted to it, tell me exactly when this star appeared. It, It would appear that Jesus at this point could have between 6 and 18 months old. And they were living in Bethlehem probably not wanting to go back to Nazareth when I looked at this I thought you know it's still true today the response to Jesus was one of three things here you could be people today as they were then like Herod it was open hostility maybe 
covered over with a veneer of, of respectability, but it was open hostility. And that's what we find today as well. I don't know, you've probably, if you've ever witnessed to people, and if you've witnessed to enough of them, you'll have people you've witnessed to who are just openly hostile to Jesus Christ and the gospel. The priests and the scribes who were there to supply Herod with the information, these guys were just totally indifferent to it. Hey, that's good enough for you, but leave me alone. I'm not interested. And of course, the third group are the wise men. And wise men today still worship Jesus. Still look for Jesus. Even sometimes at a great cost. As we see in the, as we see in the persecuted church around the world, people are still giving up their lives for Christ on a daily basis because they know that they know who Christ is. So what can we learn from the wise men? I think Spurgeon one time put it in these kind of words, although this might be a paraphrase of it. Those who truly look for Jesus will find him. And the wise men did that. They were truly, I mean these guys, it was months of a journey, probably costing a fortune to get there. But they were so convinced that they had to come and see this guy, this child that was to be born, that they gave up virtually everything. They gave up their life in Persia. They put their life in hold to go and seek this child. So those who truly seek for Jesus will find him. And when we see the wise men, those who truly find him will worship him. That, that, that goes without question. When you truly find Jesus in your life, you have no option but to worship. When you truly realize what he has done for you, the forgiveness of sin, the promise of eternal life, how can we not but worship him? How can we stand back and be indifferent? How can we be openly hostile and, still, and yet it still occurs? And again, the third point here is that those who truly worship him will set aside their earthly goods to him. The wise men came with very expensive gifts. They worshipped him and they gave him the gifts. And that's who we should be as well. That, that may be one of the things that would be another sign of who we are and how we recognise Jesus and how we give of ourselves and our, 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 our substance to the Lord. And so... The wise men disappear. At verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. I mean, another announcement in a dream here, but it's pretty emphatic. Get up and go. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. There's Hosea 11.1 if you want to look that up. Now, there was obviously a, a real imperative put in Joseph in this dream. I, you know, when I think about it and I thought about it this week, I thought, this is one of these dreams where you wake up startled and you're in a sweat and your heart's racing and you think, what have I just heard? What is it that's just happened to me? And then the recall comes and you think, I need to go. I need to be out of here. Herod's going to kill these children. Now, whether the Lord used what the wise men had said to Joseph and 
coalesced it in his mind while he was sleeping but this dream came to him and he, he had to get up and go but how was he supposed to go because it would appear that Mary and Joseph weren't the most affluent people in the world but I think maybe some of the money from the gifts may have been used gold and frankincense and myrrh what, what was Jesus supposed to do with them Joseph could put them in good use by paying for the trip to Egypt when we think about these things in these days that you know it costs you nothing to go anywhere you just jumped on a donkey and off you went but there, these journeys would take days weeks maybe even months and you would have to pay for the upkeep of them you'd have to pay for the food for the donkeys and the camels you'd have to pay for your own food you would have to pay for somebody to sleep at night it, it, it wasn't as straightforward just the same as it is today if you want to go to London for two or three days you don't just go or you don't just set off on a donkey I mean you've got to get a train organised or a plane you've got to get hotels sorted out you've got to get places to eat it, it costs money and in some measure I can believe that God would supply this through this will use some of this money to go in, in Egypt it was not an unusual place to go there was probably 100,000 Jews in Alexandria in Egypt at this point in time so it's possible that Joseph or Mary may have had relatives in Egypt and they decided we'll go there until Herod dies but this was so, re so real to Joseph that he left that night and that's the way Jesus should be to us when we, when we read the word when God speaks to us we really need to know that it's so real to us that we should be obedient to God's call in our life so when Herod realised at verse 16 that he'd been outwitted by the Magi he was furious now you can imagine what Jerusalem was like when this king who had murdered the Sanhedrin murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, his three sons I mean this guy was up for anything he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So this tells us that the star just didn't appear overnight. That it appeared sometime earlier. And Herod had worked out that the boy might be even up to two years of age. So we'll kill everybody under two years of age. Now Bethlehem wasn't a huge place. But the surrounding district, how do you... How do you enumerate the surrounding district? I mean, the people that he sent, they were part of the palace guard, yes, but they were not part of the Roman army. They were under the direct control of Herod, although they were paid for by the Romans. But a lot of these people who were part of this guard, they were the thugs and the criminals. They were the guys who were offered, swear your allegiance to Herod and join the army or have your head chopped off so what are you going to choose so they chose loyalty so these guys were under no tremendous discipline given the order to go and kill all the children under two years of age it would be a lip smacking thing for a lot of these guys because they were, they were pretty outrageous themselves so we don't know how many were killed but there would be many and who's to know do we look for birth certificates if a child was two years and one month old, does it get saved? And it's unlikely. If it looked to be toddling around, I'm quite sure it would be killed. It was just, it was just a desperate time. And here we have again the situation where Jesus is barely into the world, 
And he's beginning to influence the world. Here is Satan coming against him. We'll kill this boy. We'll kill this son of God before he gets any older. Before he can have any real influence in the world. So when Herod realised the Magi had outwitted him. All who were under two years of age were killed in Bethlehem in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Many of these prophecies had had short term um, meanings and then long term meanings. This one was actually came out of the uh, Jeremiah when he was talking about the people being taken into Babylon in captivity. That many of the children were just killed. They were literally picked up by the feet and smashed off the rocks. I mean it was a dreadful time. And that's exactly what was happening again. That was the short term fulfilment. This was the long term prophetic fulfilment of that that statement that Jeremiah made. And we'll just quickly finish here. So verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Now, the word that is used here for a child is not a baby. It's a child. It's a young boy here. Now we don't know how old Jesus might have been some commentators reckon he might even have been seven years old. Others reckon that he might only have been 18 months old. We don't know. But he's gone into Egypt. Joseph has taken him there to be away from Herod because Herod had no jurisdiction in Egypt. And we say again that there's another dream here. This must be Joseph's story because only he would know the dreams. He would, only he would be able to accurately tell Matthew what, what was happening. So he got up at verse 21, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Herod Archelaus, and the Herod is the the kind of surname if you want to call it that, that's the, we had Herod the Great, we had Herod Archelaus, we had Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, all of these guys, there was a whole load of them. Sons and grandsons of this Herod the Great. But Herod Archelaus, who was ruling in Judea, it would appear, you know, if Joseph was convinced that this son he has, this boy that he'd been given to look after was going to be the son of God, the place to live would be Jerusalem. This was where the, the son of God should live. But he was put off that idea because Archelaus, Herod's son, was ruling in Judea and was just as mad as his father was. In fact, when it got to the year 6 AD, Archelaus was so incompetent and so erratic in his leadership that the Jews pleaded with the Romans and said, if you don't get rid of this guy, we're going to rebel. The guy's a nutter. You need to get rid of him. And so that was sort of the end of the kingly reign in that measure that Archelaus was taken down and the Romans put a governor in his place. So why did they go to Nazareth? Well, it was was obviously Mary's hometown and it may well have been Joseph's hometown. The angel directed them to Galilee. And Galilee was Galilee the Gentiles. There were far more Gentiles up there than there were Jews. And it was not well thought of. Galilee was the place that they told jokes about. You know, the the way that in some measure some people here tell jokes about the Irish in 
in, in, in Israel they told jokes about the Galileans and even in Galilee the people told jokes about the Nazarenes Nazareth was the pits as I always say about shots it's not the end of the world but you can see it for there you know it's uh, <laughs> sorry all you folk for shots but that was the way some people looked upon Nazareth you know it was just I mean Nathaniel the, the, the disciple said you know you're telling me this man Jesus has come out of Nazareth can anything good come out of Nazareth you know it was a joke it was a, it was a throwaway line it was a, a kind of Bob Hope thing and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene well there's actually nowhere in the Old Testament where he would be called a Nazarene there's nothing to tell us that he would come from Nazareth but I believe that there was, no, there was no specific prophecy here but there was an inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, to Matthew here the Old Testament describes the Messiah as being despised and ill thought of a man of no, no thought at all something that you would just walk past and have no regard for at all despised and ill thought of and nowhere could be more ill thought of and despised than Nazareth so what's in a place when we mention Nazareth to people many people would say oh that's something to do with Christianity or Jesus or something they might not know exactly what it is but many people who go to church would probably know what Nazareth was and places tend to take on the character of those that come from them initially this Nazareth was a place of well you know we tell jokes about Nazareth you know but when I say things to you like Donnybrook do any of you remember what Donnybrook was famous for? Donnybrook was a place in Ireland where they had a, a family wedding between two families and the whole thing went into a pitched battle. And many people still talk about when there's a family feud on it was a real Donnybrook, you know. And it, whenever anybody mentions Donnybrook to me, that's the thing that I think of. And when we get more serious about it, when people mention Dunblane to you, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? The terrible massacre. When we think about places like Columbine High School in the United States, it's tainted with that same dreadful occurrence. And of course, we look at things in history. Uh, those of you who are history buffs, Appomattox Courthouse, to me, it always speaks of the surrender of General Lee to General Grant in the American Civil War. That's just it probably because I'm a history buff but anyway it doesn't really matter but these things places have an influence on people they, they affect our thoughts the name Nazareth will always become connected to Jesus he proclaimed himself to be that and it connects to us as well he's our saviour he came from and was identified with a despised district in Israel Nazareth indeed to put them down, the early Christians were called Nazarenes because of the, the implication that they were all nutters, that they were all people that you didn't really take too much regard of because they came or they followed a man from Nazareth. Who indeed would follow a man from Nazareth? And yet we see in that name Jesus of Nazareth because there were many Jesus or Joshua's or Yeshua's around at that time. Just the same as there were two Bethlehems. You had to enunciate between them Bethlehem of Judea and Bethlehem of Ephraim. Here we have Jesus. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Jesus who? Jesus of Nazareth.
The name, in some measure, is our identity. We belong not just to Jesus, but to Jesus of Nazareth, who indeed is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we need to remember that today as we look at this. The influence that he's having in our lives even today, the thing that spills down, that cascades down through history and brings us to the place where you are. You're not here this morning because you desire to be here, or you may have desired to be here, but you were here because that desire was put in you by the Lord to be here. He wanted you to hear something new of himself here today, and I hope and pray that we'll be inspired and encouraged by it. That all of the the, the, the wiles of the devil to try and destroy this man Jesus even while he was still a baby have come to naught and have come to naught because Jesus wanted to pick his time to die for our sin to be indeed the saviour of the world let's pray Father we just thank you and praise you for your goodness and for your grace and your mercy we thank you for your love and your tender kindness towards us we thank you Lord that you broke into history a mankind, Lord, and you came as a baby, as a child, as a young man, as a saviour. We thank you, Lord, that you took on our very form, that you would know every single thing that we go through, Lord, every temptation that tempts us, Father, and yet you were without sin. Lord, inspire us with that, encourage us with that, that our sins are forgiven. We believe in you, Lord, that your blood was shed for us, and in that tiny stable, in that little town of Bethlehem, Lord, all those years ago was the start of something holy, miraculous and wonderful that we can still proclaim today. Because you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.